Good morning, everyone. We are in our fourth part of our series titled Woe from Matthew chapter 23. And if you turn your Bibles there with me to Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. Next week, come back. We'll finish this sermon series before we move into another. Next week is the last part of this sermon series. But today, Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. And this whole section of Matthew 23 is entitled A Warning Against Hypocrisy. And and today's verses, more than any of the others we've read, might be that thing that you read and go, when you read that, you go, yep, that's what I think about when I think of a hypocrite. That, Jesus nailed it right there. That is it. Verse 25, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Hypocrisy, someone who appears to be something that they are not. And just in hearing or reading this text, you might have someone in mind that immediately pops in your mind. Yep, that is that person. Can I ask you to do something? Push that person out of your mind. Push that person out of your mind. As we've been going through this series, while this is a warning against hypocrisy and we, we tend to... to explore this from just a condemnation of others, we are trying to look at it from the perspective of what is the Lord saying to us. I've quoted him in two of the previous three sermons, and so I'm going to do so again. Dr. Craig uh, Keener, the commentator, said, modern Christian readers often think of Pharisees as hypocrites. We've created caricatures of Pharisees. They're this, they're this religious boogeyman that is out there. And so when, when Jesus condemns the Pharisees, we can go, yep, yep, we agree with that. But, but Keener points out that thus, when hearing them denounced, we do not feel threatened because we don't see ourselves in them. But then Keener says, but it is the human heart. It is the human heart rather than an ethical system that Jesus is here denouncing. Hypocrisy is an us problem, not a them problem. It is a heart problem, not a liberal or conservative problem. And you have a human heart and I have a human heart. So this message is collectively for all of us. And Jesus is speaking to people that, that appear to be one thing on the outside, but, but are not fully that thing or maybe not that thing at all on the inside. And may I propose that Jesus is is not making this point so that everyone else can look at the Pharisees and, and judge them, but rather he is trying to help the Pharisees understand who they themselves are. They are self deceived. They look at themselves and think that they are right and that they are superior to everyone else or that they have it all together, but but they are self-deceived. And I would say that in our extreme culture of self-deception, this message is for each one of us. We all are prone 
whether we realize it or not, to self-deception. As we get closer and closer to the end of time, I believe that becomes more and more so. In my study for this sermon, I came across a paper that was written by uh, Dr. Ian DeWeese Boyd, and I found this on, in, in, the, in um, some articles on the Stanford University doctoral website, on their philosophy website. Dr. Boyd is a philosopher, and, and in his research, he cites that self-deception, he cites that self-deception historically has been considered a threat to moral self-knowledge. He says self-deception has historically been a cover for immoral activity and a violation of authenticity. He says self-deception has been historically thought to be morally wrong or at the very least morally dangerous. But now, in his article, he points out two other dominant arguments have formed. And those arguments are this, that first, can a person truly be held morally responsible for self-deception? In other words, can someone, if they want to see themselves however they want to see themselves, can they be really held accountable for that? You know, people think I'm this, but really that's not who I am. Or, and, and, and they deceive themselves into thinking they are something that they are not. Second, he said, is there anything morally problematic with self-deception? And if so, what and under what circumstances? I believe in Matthew chapter 25, verses 20, or Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28, Jesus addresses both those questions. And he says, hey, Pharisees, you are deceiving yourselves. And then Jesus says very plainly, and that is not okay. You may think you look okay and others might think you look okay, but you're deceiving yourself on what you really are on the inside. Jesus in these passages illustrates to us and shows us that, that self-deception is antithetical to who we are called to be as Christians. But self-deception is a real problem in our world. I want to give you three parables. These are parables not from Jesus, but these are parables that I wrote myself. So don't hold them up as, as extreme biblical, okay? I know you wouldn't anyways, but just so you know. These are three parables, stories from me that I think illustrate self-deception. Self-deception is like a man that works at a store where a new boss is hired. We'll, we'll say Target. If you watch CNBC, Target has been in the news lately. They're going through some financial difficulties. And so I'm sure there's some shakeup at all levels of, of who they're hiring. And so John works at Target. We'll call this man John. And John works at Target and they bring in a new head manager. He works at the Target right down here on Cherry Hill. Now don't go and if you see a John at the Cherry Hill Target, don't say, oh, our pastor was talking about you. This is all made up. I just used John. Uh, John, if you end up working at Target, we're not talking about you. Um, but John works there and they bring in a new boss, Sandy. She's the new boss. And, and John does not like Sandy. In fact, Sandy starts to make some changes as she's been directed to by, by her superiors. And, and he starts to complain about those changes to the other workers. And he starts to think to himself, you know, I don't think actually Sandy is qualified for this job. She's not cut out for this job. He starts to tell people, Sandy doesn't know what she is doing. John starts to say, you know, if so-and-so was leading us, it would be much better. Or, or maybe this person could lead us. It would be much better. And he, he begins to share the seeds of dissent amongst the workers at Target there on Cherry Hill. And one day, 
One day, John goes to Margaret, and Margaret is a, is a lady that's balanced. She's friends with everybody. He thinks, she's influential. I, I want to get her on our side. And so he goes to Margaret, and he says, there's a group of us that don't like Sandy. She is changing too many things. Sandy isn't qualified. And some of us are going to try and work against her to get her out, to make a change. He says, Margaret, are you with us on this? Margaret likes John. She likes her coworkers, but she's uncomfortable with going behind the leader's back. She doesn't feel comfortable with, with the dissent that's taking place or, or the undermining of the leader. So Margaret goes to Jim. Jim has worked at Target longer than anybody else. And, and she goes to Jim and she asks Jim, what do you think? She shares what John sh- told her. And she said, what do you think we should do about this? And Jim said, well, let me think about it. And then Jim decides to talk to the assistant manager. And then the assistant manager eventually tells Sandy. He says, you know, this tension you're feeling and this dissent that's going on, it's because these are the things that are being said and the things that are being passed around amongst the employees. And Sandy begins to look into it. And before long, she she traces all the dissent back to John's conversations. And so Sandy calls John into her office and, and John is terminated. Now, John goes to his locker to get his things. But before he leaves the store, he finds Margaret and he says, thanks a lot. Your big mouth got me fired. As he's walking out of the store, he runs into his best friend, Fred, who works there at the store as well. And he says, and he tells him, don't trust Margaret. She'll end up ruining everything. Her big mouth got me fired. Self-deception is like John who doesn't have the ability to see and to acknowledge that it was actually his words that got him fired and not Margaret's. Self-deception is like a lady who's on Twitter. We'll call her Mildred because I know there's tons of Mildreds on Twitter. And she works at a high profile Christian uh, uh, company and, and she's in charge of, of media and putting out things to re- represent the message of Christ that they're trying to share. And one day Mildred is on Twitter and she sees something that, that really annoys her. And so without thinking about it, without taking a step back and analyzing her own heart, she types out a 280 uh, derogatory tweet response, slandering several individuals and slandering groups of people. And she hits send and out the tweet goes into the ethos of social media. A couple days later, her boss calls her in and tells Mildred, we're going to have to let you go. She says, why? And he says, your tweet, that tweet you sent out, Mildred, does not reflect our Christian values. And we can't have such representation in our company. Mildred leaves and she goes home and she tells all her friends that she was fired because of cancel culture. Because her self-deception doesn't allow her to realize that it was the hate and impatience in her own heart that led to her termination. Or one more. Self-deception is like me sitting in the middle school classroom just a few weeks ago, which actually did happen. Uh, the first part of the story is true. The second part of the story is just hopefully never happens, but you'll be able to relate maybe. Self-deception is like me sitting in the middle school classroom and, and this last week for the back to school night, where we get to go and meet all the teachers and they tell us about what's going to happen within those classrooms. 
And one of the things the teachers were telling us is that we want to build into your kids' responsibility. We want to teach them at the middle school level that they need to be responsible for themselves and responsible for their own actions. And so the teacher then said to us, so we are asking you as parents, if, you're, if your students have an issue with homework or they have an issue with uh, understanding assignment or, or not understanding assignment, but if they have an issue with your homework or, or, or a question that they need to talk about, we would ask that before you as the parent approach us, that you have your student approach us first so that we can begin to teach them to be responsible for their own actions. And all of us parents smile and nod and sit there and nod at the teacher and say, yeah, that's a really great idea. And then the teacher said to us, and during COVID, we, we, we were a little bit looser on, on late work because, you know, COVID and it was, everyone was up. It was, it just, we know, well, you know what COVID did to all of us. So COVID, what COVID did. And so we were a little bit looser on late work, but, but we're trying to rein that back in. And so, if you miss school for, for whatever reason, you go on vacation somewhere, your kid's sick, your kids will have X amount of days to make up their work. And if they don't make up the work in that time, even if, unless there's a medical reason that they can share with us, then your child may get a zero. And we'll have that conversation with your child and gently explain to them why. Because we're trying to teach your kids responsibility. And all of us Parents nod and smile and say, good, you're teaching our kids responsibility. Three months later, I go on a trip and I take my boys with me and they go on this trip with me and we enjoy, we have a good time. And when we come back, they have a hard time getting back into the swing of things. And so, so they don't get their assignments done in those allotted days. And, and they come home and they say, dad, we got a zero on this. And I say, why did you get a zero? Well, because we didn't get our homework done. I called the teacher and I say to the teacher, my kids were on vacation. They, they were tired. They're having a hard time getting... The teacher says, Pastor Chad, you know, if you could have the student make an appointment with us first before you talk to them. I said, wait a second, I'm paying the bill here. I should have a right to talk to whoever I want to talk to. And the teacher says, but remember in class that day, you smiled and nodded when we said, if we're going to do this. And I go, and I begrudgingly go, oh yeah, I, I did that. And so I say, tell my kid to have an appointment with him. But, but behind this teacher's back, I start to say, that teacher is uncooperative. They, they don't want to work with parents, start to kind of undermine them. And then the teacher meets with them and they tell them why. Why didn't you get this work done? Was it because you were sick after coming back from your trip? No, we were just tired. Okay, well, you're going to have to get a zero on this. And this is just a learning experience. They come home and they say, I got a zero. And I go, what? And now I go to the principal. I say, what? And I've forgotten that I originally smiled and nodded when they said they want to teach my kid responsibility. And I'm deceived by the fact that my lack of responsibility and lack of holding my own kids accountable, and I somehow now blame the teacher and make the teacher's life what it is. We all have our illustrations. In fact, right now, if you just pause, you could probably think of a story that's not a parable, but something in your own life that is your own version of self-deception. I did this because they did this. So it's not really my fault. It's their fault, self-deception. The Pharisees are ones that cannot see those dark places in their hearts and they're deceiving themselves into thinking that they are something that they are actually not. Self-deception is a human problem. And Jesus said to us, you clean the outside of the cup and you get all nice, and, but, but on the inside, there's, there's still some dark things in you. 
Jesus said, you're, you make things look beautiful sometimes, but, but when things go sideways, really it exposes that there's deadness inside of you. You may act righteous, but you're actually full of hypocrisy and wickedness because in situations you don't own who you are and what you've done and you blame others and you point to others. Jesus wanted the Pharisees to see themselves for who they really are. Did he do this because he wanted to, to shame them? No. Was it just to, to point out justice? We like to say that Jesus was pointing out justice. Was it just to point out justice? No, Jesus brings our attention to who we really are because I believe he wants to save us. Even in these woes that seem so firm and so strong, I believe that ultimately Jesus's desire for each one of those Pharisees, each one of those teachers of the law was to save them. I believe there's evidence for this in the scriptures. If you just jump ahead to Matthew chapter 26, you will see this. Jesus is visiting with another Pharisee in Matthew chapter 26, verses six and seven. The Bible says, while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon and Matthew calls him the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at a table. This man, Simon the leper, was actually a Pharisee. We know this based on Luke chapter seven. If you look at Luke chapter seven, beginning in verse 36, Luke writes the story in this way and gives us some insight into this moment. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him at his feet weeping and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee, Simon the leper, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman was touching him, what kind of sinner was touching him. And Jesus, the Bible tells, perceives Simon's thoughts. These are thoughts that are in his head. And, and Jesus knows us better than ourselves. And he knows us, knows what we're thinking. And, and he perceives the thoughts in Simon's head. And he says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. And, and Simon says to a teacher, tell me. And Jesus says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Jesus then said, then turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wept. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. She has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins 
are forgiven. And, and oftentimes when we read this story, we focus on the grace and the love of Jesus for this sinful woman. But in this moment, Jesus's grace is not only for the sinful woman, he is trying to win the heart of Simon the leper as well. Listen to what Ellen White wrote in commenting on this moment. She said, Simon's coldness and neglect toward the Savior showed how little he appreciated the mercy he had received. He had thought he honored Jesus by inviting him into his house, but he now saw himself, listen to this line, but he now saw himself as he really was. While he thought of himself as reading Jesus, his guest, his guest had been reading him. He saw, this is talking about Simon now, he saw how true Christ's judgment of him, of him was. His religion had been a robe of Phariseeism. He had despised the compassion of Jesus. He had not recognized him as the representative of God. He saw the magnitude, listen, he saw the magnitude of the debt which he owed his Lord. His pride was humbled. He repented and the proud Pharisee became a self-sacrificing disciple. There is the story of the woman being forgiven and loved, but, but in this story also is Jesus saying something, helping Simon to understand who he is on his inside so that he can then realize just how much Jesus has done for him. He saw himself as he really was. And because of that, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Self-deception keeps us from seeing ourselves as we truly are. And when we don't see ourselves as we truly are, we don't understand or appreciate just how beautiful and marvelous the love of Jesus is. Reagan and Landon read Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, which says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way of everlasting. David, the author of this Psalm, through these words, we realize that he realized that there were things about himself, things about his sinfulness, things about his own heart that he could not see. And so he prays for God to, to search him, to, to reveal to him these things. That the God of the universe, he's saying, show me who I really am so that I can move away from that and I can move into the way of everlasting. Now, we want to be careful here and make sure we understand this. We do not ask God to show us who we are so that we can then wallow in self-pity. You know, there's, there's long histories of people that, 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 said, oh, I'm such a sinner. We think of Martin Luther who climbed the steps of that cathedral till his knees were bloody about him whipping himself to try to, to, to beat out the sin that he saw in himself. This is not what we're talking about. We don't see who we truly are so that we can have self-pity or wallow in it. But when we see who we really are, then we are more likely to fully surrender and say, Jesus, I need you. I need your love. More and more of your love, Jesus. It's not in my notes, but I was thinking about this when I was preaching this this morning, that, that the day that I said yes to Jesus Christ, I remember the conflict that happened in my head and Satan put 
through my brain quickly all of my sins and all of my struggles and all the addictions I had and everything and, and all this bad stuff just washing in my brain as if Satan's saying, you will never be good enough. And you know, in some ways, that was actually the best thing that ever happened to me because in that moment, I had such misery and then Jesus' voice broke through that and said, you've done everything else. Why won't you try me? And suddenly in light of everything else that I'd done and realizing how miserable I was and how I was surely lost, in light of all that, suddenly I saw that Jesus was the only way out. And I stood up. I stood up in that church in Ohio, said, Jesus, save me. And the Bible tells us that, that when we see ourselves and, and we realize that Jesus is the only way in comparison to everything else that we have been doing, the Bible tells us in John chapter six, verses 35 through 40, that Jesus declared that, that he is the bread of life and anybody that comes to him will no, never hunger, that, that he is the, the water of life and that whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. He says that all those that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, he says, I will never drive away for I've come down for heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And then he tells us what the will of God is. The will of God is that, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. In this series, as we've looked at the struggles of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, we've been analyzing the, what those struggles mean for us. And we see that, that when, they don't understand, when you don't understand the gospel, when you don't understand who Jesus is, then it messes up the way we witness. We actually impede people from entering God's family and God's kingdom. When we, when we don't understand the gospel, our beliefs get sideways because we somehow are trying to adjust our beliefs or adjust what we believe the Bible teaches in order to make ourselves comfortable that we feel like we are still good with God. So we, we adjust our beliefs when we don't understand the gospel. And when we don't understand truly who Jesus is and we don't truly understand the gospel, then we don't understand our need for him. But this is the gospel as I understood it on that night in Ohio and as I understand it now. I am a great sinner, but I have an even greater savior and I need him to do everything from me from first to last and everything in between. In this world of self-deception, we need to ask Jesus to show us who we are. And so I'm gonna ask you church to do three things. Three things for me as we wrap up. The first thing is I'm going to ask you to pray that prayer that David prayed. Search me, O God, and know me. If there's anything anxious in me, if there's anything impure in me, show me that. Reveal that to me. But, but here's the second thing I'm going to ask you to do. Because you pray that prayer and then you don't sit there and wait and go, okay, show me all my bad stuff, show me all my bad stuff, show me all my bad stuff. No. What the Bible tells us to do is to understand who we are. The best way to do that is to look unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. The Bible tells us that by beholding, we become changed. 
So if I say, who am I, who am I? And then I'm like Martin Luther and I see my bad thing and I start beating myself. That's not, no, I say, God, reveal to me who I am. What's the best way to do that? I look at Jesus and I see how amazing Jesus is. And then as I see how beautiful and amazing Jesus is, I begin to see myself in light of that. And I can say, oh, Jesus, I don't want to be like that. I want to be more like you. Change me and make me new. Jesus, oh man, I see that, that you are gentle and kind to every person. And I see that I'm not that way. Jesus, change me and make me new. Oh, Jesus, I see how you welcome the little children and you welcome the least of these. And, and, and now I see in light of that, that that's not who I am. So, so change me and make me like this. Jesus, I see that you were devoted to prayer and, and I realize that my devotion is weak. Jesus, I want to be like you. So, so change me and make me like this. I asked Jesus, reveal to me, but the best way to see who I truly am is by looking to Jesus and seeing myself in contrast to that. And then the third thing I want you to do is get in community. Because the fact of the matter is, is the Bible tells us that when we are in relationship with others, that they help us to understand who we are. They help us to grow and to change and to adjust. Jesus works through others around us to shape us and to mold us and to fashion us. Christianity was never to be a solo religion ever. So we all need to be in community. We have our connect groups, our small groups. We have our Sabbath schools. Your Sabbath school supports and, and is a loving support of Sabbath school. If you have some friends, some fellow Christian friends, as you're with them and as you're, as you're dialoguing, discover how God's using them to help shape you and to reveal himself and reveal truly who you are. When we truly see who we are and how amazing Jesus' love for us, then we will, like David, be able to say thank you and now lead me in the way of everlasting. Lord Jesus, I pray as we live in this world where it's easy to deceive ourselves and even we're encouraged to deceive ourselves, Lord, I pray that you will help us to understand that that's not the way of the Christian. What you call us to, to do is to see who we really are and then to turn to you and say, Jesus, I am a great sinner but I need an even greater savior. So change me. Lord, and I pray that each one of us, as we, as we ask you to reveal to us those dark spots of our heart, that, that you will do so only as we look towards you so that we will know that there's hope. And as we ask you to change us, that, that you will put people around us that will help shape and fashion us into your image. Lord, that you'll use this church community, that you'll use our, our small groups, that you'll use our Sabbath schools, that you'll use our, our friendships to help us to understand better who you are, Jesus, and who you have called us to be. Lord Jesus, we need more and more of you. And that only will happen as we make room, as we eliminate the black in us, not by our power or by our might, but through your power and your spirit, Lord. So help us to behold you, Jesus. As we look more and more to you, Jesus, may we be changed into your image. Amen.